Hello there and welcome to another episode of Unleash Love. My name is Clemma Young and I'm your host. And in today's episode, I'm talking with Michael Easter, author of The Comfort Crisis, Embrace Discomfort to Reclaim Your Wild, Healthy, Happy Self. Michael is a contributing editor for Men's Health as well as a writer for other notable publications and platforms. And he's been featured on the Joe Rogan Experience. We talk about why there's a comfort crisis right now, what it means for our civilization, and what we can do about it. We also dive into the history books together and see if there's any lessons maybe that we've overlooked that are sorely needed in today's world. I really enjoyed this conversation. There's no fluff, so it's really practical. It's really meaty. And so without further ado, I bring you Michael Easter. Mm. I have to ask you, man, what made you write this book in the first place? Was there an event? Was there some kind of lead up to this, like an explosion? Like, fuck this, I'm going to write this book. <laughs> yeah, I had a, I had a handful um, of events, like just, you know, I, were, I wrote for Men's Health Magazine for a long time. Um, I was on staff. I'm still like a contributing editor there. And I think from that experience, I sort of noticed that really anything that improves human health, whether that's physical or mental, usually comes with some form of discomfort, right? If you want to get fit, you got to work out. Working out sucks. If you want to lose weight, you probably are going to be hungry. Being hungry isn't fun. Um, I also, I got sober about seven years ago and going through that, that was uncomfortable, you know, and, but I came out on the other side a lot better. And then, um, I meet this guy whose name is Donnie Vincent and he's this backcountry bow hunter and filmmaker. I end up doing a, a story on him for men's health and we become good friends. He invites me up to the Arctic for more than a month. And, you know, I'd made that observation about discomfort. And when I get up there, it's like all these totally new forms of discomfort just get lobbed at me all the time right? Freezing cold, um, doing anything at all takes effort. You know, if I want to drink water, uh, I got to hike down to a stream and get it and hike a couple miles back up to camp. Um, even the silence and solitude of nature can be totally different and uncomfortable compared to what we experience at home. And like everything we do just is challenging and, you know, we're hungry the whole time on and on and on. Uh, but when I got back to my normal everyday life, my, I, I just felt better. I mean, was, I mean, there's obviously a lot fitter. I'd lost weight. Um, but it just felt like the dial on my mental and physical health was like, had been moved 10 notches, you know? And I kind of wanted to know what was up with that. Um, and I could see that really the, the difference is that, you know, thinking back to that observation I made, like I faced all these different forms of discomfort in the Arctic that we're just a part of everyday human life for millions of years. Um, stuff that we've totally engineered out of our lives that we no longer face. And I wondered, you know, what are the repercussions of um, this change we've had in our lifestyles? And so I started traveling the globe. I read a bunch of studies, a bunch of ancient texts. I talked to, you know, anthropologists at Harvard, um, doctors at the Mayo Clinic, special forces soldiers, uh, Buddhist leaders in Bhutan, just all these different people who kind of in their own unique way are finding that there are certain forms of discomfort that humans really need to thrive. Or less. Mm. 
Yeah, there's loads that you've just talked about that I would want to touch on. I mean, I wrote a, a quote recently, um, convenience should not be celebrated. You know, I was kind of like, I, I'm, I'm quite a pensive person. I'm quite reflective. And I just thought there's so much about convenience that I feel damages us as a species. How is it hurting us? How is comfort and convenience hurting us? That's what we're driving for, where all the technology, all the optimization, all the improvements in efficiency, our th philosophies about how to run businesses, about how to have more productive uh personal lives. It's all boiling down to like, okay, how do we make things more convenient? How do we make things more available? Amazon Prime, one hour, drone deliveries, you know, you name it, it's uh, content on demand, Netflix. What What is it about convenience and comfort that is damaging us as a species? Well, first off, I'll say it's not at all surprising that things are headed this way because when you think about the environments that we evolved in for like nearly all of time, doing the most comfortable, least effortful, easiest thing kept us alive. It helped us survive. So think about like we are incentivized to not move because in our past, movement burned up calories. There wasn't that much food. When we finally got food, we were incentivized to overeat it. And if it was calorie dense, we'd eat even more of it because we want to put on fat, right? For the next time we didn't uh, have food around. We're incentivized to avoid all risk. This used to help us, but doesn't necessarily help us today. So there's all that, there's this overall drive we have for the easy, the effortless, the comfortable that once the world started getting really comfortable and easy and effortless, it doesn't serve us anymore. I mean, this is why people today, it's like we've engineered, just think of um, movement and exercise. It's like we've engineered movement out of our days, which is not surprising because we have this drive to be lazy. It used to be helpful, but now we're not, there's, there's not many incentives to exercise internally, right? But we know we need effort. Think about food system. It's like the most popular foods that we consume are all super calorie dense, because we are rewarded when we eat calorie-dense food with a shot of dopamine. Now, the average foods that people eat, they're way more calorie-dense than anything you'd find in nature. And we're driven to overeat them. This is why, in America at least, more than 70% of people are overweight or obese. Um, we avoid risk in, in things like business and in our jobs and in our relationships. Because in the past, it was like don't do something risky. That's dangerous. But nowadays it's like the world isn't really dangerous and we're just missing opportunities. So, I mean, this goes on and on and on, but essentially this tip into, you know, convenience, although it's great in a lot of ways, we also know that we need to be challenged. We need to put effort into life. Um, we need to sometimes do hard things or else we get a little bit out of whack as we're mm. seeing with our rates of physical and mental health problems. Mm. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I was early to adopt a mindset along the lines of what you've just explained. I was in mastermind groups with, you know, pre predominantly men, sometimes men only groups. I met with overachievers, you know, 
I mean, with your work in men's health as an editor, you probably have a peer group that's very similar. Maybe you're just, you know, very pressured to always perform to the highest degree. So I immediately learned what it's like to challenge yourself and to always be on the edge of comfort, maybe with one foot outside the circle of comfort in the uncertainty zone. Um, and people like Iceman, Hoff, you know, are constantly pushing these messages. I, I remember I was listening to a podcast episode he did with Jordan Peterson recently, and he has the kind of personality where, you know, uh, Jordan Peterson was saying, so um, why don't we do these things anymore? And he said, because we don't do hard things anymore. You know, he just kind of like blurted <laughs> it out. And it was so it was so great because it was unfiltered and it was raw. But essentially, it's true. And I think um, I've, I've, I've learned after leaving some of those groups how easy it is to kind of go backwards into that kind of retreat into that circle of comfort. And it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel to me like it's comfortable. I'm sure you know, when you went into those mountains or into the wilderness and you talked about how difficult it was, eventually it got to the point where it was very fulfilling because you had exercised those muscles and you had become a stronger version of yourself. And did that really, I mean, you said when you got home, you realized how much stronger you got, how much it had affected you. I mean, I'll, I want to ask you more about like, how do you even keep that going? Uh, and maybe you've got some suggestions for that, but um a question that I have on this whole topic is, is this predominantly a male challenge? Like, I know there are women who talk about breaking free of your, you know, bad habits. Like Mel Robbins, for example, if you know who she is, is has the five second rule, one, two, three, four, five, and do whatever it is that you know you need to do that you're putting off, which seems to work really well. But like David Goggins, Joko Wilnick, Joe Rogan, even, you know, you've been on his show before, Tom Bilio, uh, Jason Wilson, uh, Men Don't Cry, uh, or Cry Like a Man, rather, and even Russell Brand with his book about recovery, you know, freedom from addiction, which I was an, an alcoholic, right? So mm -hmm. I can relate to you being sober for seven, I haven't been sober for seven years, but I've been sober for about eight months. And it wasn't easy, man. It was so mm -hmm. tough because yeah. I was relying on it. I was relying yeah, exactly. on it to, to keep myself you know, comfortable. And it wasn't good, man. It wasn't good. So, so, so I guess the question is, like, do you see this as a predominantly male issue? Or, or you know, is that, it, are, is that why most of the people talking about this are Iceman Hoff or Jocko Wilnick or ex-Special Forces people? Or, and if it is just a male problem, is it a subset of men who are willing to talk about it? Why aren't, why aren't more men talking about this? Why aren't more people talking about this? I don't think it is just a male thing. And I say that just based on the reaction to my book. Um, I probably get half and half men and women, to be honest. And, you know, especially I have a chapter on physical activity and the idea of rucking and carrying heavy stuff um, as a form of exercise. And a lot of women have really glommed onto that. I think when you look at um, traditional societies, Men have typically been sent out to do things like hunting, right? And oftentimes rites of passage um, for men were probably more physically difficult and, you know, spent out in nature than for women. But we also know that like 
women probably did more work as we evolved. And I mean, the men would go out and hunt, but the women were, were gathering. They were having to carry around kids all day. Like, um, I think that just a lot of the way culturally, um, things are framed that, you know, men still get sent out into war. So there's this sense of like, oh, that person was a SEAL. That's a really badass job, you know? Um, but I do think that, uh, and, and those people just have the loudest voices and they have the backgrounds of that I think attract people. Um, but I do think that they're, it's 50, 50, my experience, you know? Mm, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. I mean, just trying to understand, you know, what's driving the trend behind these conversations. Um, let's talk about, I mean, I don't make our, my shows political at all. You know, this is a, a relationship podcast, first and foremost, and then a mental health one. Uh, but, but, but I'm always interested in improving a, in a personal development kind of focus. But in terms of politics, do you see an alignment of comfort rising to the degree it's at now and the kind of left ideologies of kind of individualism and freedom and liberty and just being able to do whatever you want regardless of the kind of impact it might have on you or how does do you see an alignment there is that why there's like a a, a heightened leftist movement right now um that's a good question i think that um I will say this. So one thing that I talk about in the book is this idea that we've removed boredom from our lives. So boredom was this evolutionary discomfort that um, essentially told us that whatever we are doing with our time, uh, it had worn thin. The return on our time in invested uh, just wasn't working out anymore. So picture yourself on a hunt. You haven't seen an animal for 12 hours. Boredom would kick on and basically be like, hey, if you want to survive, you're going to need food. You should go dig some potatoes or pick some fruit or whatever it may be. Um, nowadays are, we have a really easy fix for boredom, right? It's, we get on our cell phone, we watch TV, you look at, at least the data on Americans, we spend more than 11 hours a day engaging with digital media. So this is our cell phones. This is like Instagram, Twitter. Um, this is Netflix on TV screens. This is computer screens. So we have this really easy out for boredom. And I think what you've also seen with the rise of digital media and essentially its evolution with algorithms that push us, that are tailor-made for us. So, you know, if I have a certain political ideology, I can just fall into that and just read only that. And I'm only going to see stuff that I agree with. And I'm not going to see stuff that I don't agree with because I don't click on that. I don't spend as much time with that. And therefore, advertisers aren't, you know, the companies aren't getting their advertising hits. And, you know, I think when you have a country where two people can Google the exact same thing and get totally different results and totally different truths, there's going to be a little bit of tension. And so I think that um, to kind of go back to your question about politics, I, I mean, I do think that this evolutionary drive we have to not be bored, to focus on information that is negative and inflammatory, also focusing on that used to keep us alive, um, paired with really smart algorithms that tell us what we want to hear is why you're seeing such a political divide in the US and other countries. So I don't know if that answers your question, but <laughs> it's kind of some thoughts that came to mind. 
No, it's all good. I mean, it 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 definitely makes sense. Um, and you know, there's this ongoing kind of pressure to be on the right side of history during these really tumultuous times with these crazy, you know, um, policies on, let's say, allowing kids to choose their gender when they haven't even developed to the point where they even know what that really means. And you, you know, we're living in a world now uh, at the moment where I think things are just so, so politically divisive and so, um, um, just so crazy. Uh, But but back to the topic of, of comfort, and uh, I, I want to ask you more about your journey. So what were the major takeaways that you got from, you know, looking into this information and studying it and practicing it? What were the major takeaways that you got for being able to take control of your life, essentially, and being able to make decisions that were in your best interest, maybe in the longer term, because we're talking about, um, to a certain degree, we're talking about offsetting the initial pleasure of the moment in return for doing something that's, you know, uh, going to reward you further down the line. It's going to be a little bit more hard. It's going to be a little bit more tough, but you're going to get more value and fulfillment from it because it's you're offsetting that initial pleasure and the initial pleasure yeah. is one of the major factors of comfort is like, okay, now I don't need to do anything. I can just stay here comfortable and things will continue on the status quo. So how did you manage to, to break away? And can we kind of quantify that and replicate that for other people? Well, I think that one thing I've taken away is, that, you know, having worked in magazines for so long and been, you know, really, involved in health and fitness and nutrition and mental health media, you always see things sold as a silver bullet. It's like, Hey, just do this one thing. It's going to fix all your problems. Well, it doesn't work like that. You know, our lives have changed so much over the last hundred years that we don't even realize all the ways they've changed. And so you, you see a lot of, you know, yeah, just do this one thing. Um, but it doesn't work because there's so many things that we're doing differently now. Um, and we've removed so many things that used to be good for us. So I think for me, this like journey reintroduced me to a lot of, I guess what I'll call these sort of evolutionary discomforts that we need every day. So this is things like, you know, we need to take on, um, physical challenges. We used to face those all the time in our past. And when we would take them on and, um, come out the other side, we'd learn something about our potential. So you see this in things like rites of passage. You see this in things like the hero's journey. We don't really have that anymore because those are a little bit dangerous, right? I can't do anything dangerous anymore. Um, things like we don't spend any time. We don't spend much time outside. The average person spends about 95% of their time indoors now, but we also know that being in nature has some really great mental and physical health benefits. And the reason we don't go into nature is because it's unpredictable and it's uncomfortable. It's too hot. It's too cold. Might get rained on, might get lost. Oh, the sun might burn my skin, right? Uh, we're no longer hungry that often, right? As we evolved, we were constantly hungry. Food was at a premium. Nowadays, we're surrounded in food. We still have this drive to eat. And so we just eat it all the time and we eat too much of it. You look at eating, only 20% of eating is driven by actual physiological hunger. The other 80% is because we're on some schedule we made up or because we're stressed out or whatever reason. Um, 
even our exercise that we do, which all exercise is great, don't get me wrong, is done in an air-conditioned gym on a strange contraption that has us move in ways that we'd never move naturally, right? When we lift weights, it's like we put our elbows on this padded thing and then we move this handle along this like fixed track. It's like, we just try and make that as comfortable as possible. Um, We don't like move like we used to. So there's just like this myriad, and I could go on and on. There's just like myriad of ways our days have changed. And as we've sort of realized, oh, we we need to correct for this. I think we've sort of fumbled our way through it in a lot of ways. And we focus too much on silver bullet type stuff. And that shit doesn't work. It might work for a while, but not really. We need to think about a lot of different ways. And when I think about discomfort, like in the book, I don't, I don't think the message is just go do whatever is uncomfortable because certain things are going to help and certain things are not like certain things are just like, you're just making shit up, you know? Um, so it's like, what, how, how can we mimic some of the things in our past that we evolved, um, facing because those tend to still move the dial for us. Mm. So, yeah, the, 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 the thing that you, you mentioned about just making shit up, <laughs> because it's uncomfortable. <laughs> One of the questions that I had for you, and I'll talk to you about a, a bit about this now, is that being around those people, those high achievers in those groups, peer groups, right? I mean, we're talking about influence here. We're talking about like how, who do you draw your energy from and who do you try to emulate? And you've got role models, you've got peer groups, you've got family, you've got all these influences in your life. And the more you spend time with them, the more, right, the saying is you become them. And so what I found was there was kind of almost like a, I don't want to say toxic, well, in the groups that I was in, it it could be considered a a bit toxic masculinity. I don't like that term. But, But there was something about always challenging yourself to the point where it was, it was just, constant. It was like 100% of the time. You're just thinking of things to do because you want to prove to yourself you can do them. Um, and I'm and I'm just very sensitive to being in that environment again and 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 people listening to this and, and thinking, okay, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to, I'm going to make my, my life uncomfortable. I'm going to be around people who are going to always challenge me. And I feel like there's a, a balance that can be met. Otherwise, you're going to hit either end of the spectrum. You're either going to be too comfortable or you're going to be too pressured. And it's just trying to find that balance in there somewhere. And how did that work for you? How did you find a balance in, or have you been able to find a balance in your life between comfort and discomfort? Yeah, hundred um, percent. Yeah. I think you raise a really good point. I think the question is like, I think what can happen in certain groups is that it becomes comparison shopping you're not doing this, that you're doing this thing. So like, you can be like, Hey, I did this thing. That's cooler than what you did, you know? And then it's like, Oh, well now I have to do this thing because this guy did that and blah, blah. That's just stupid. Um, it's, it's not sustainable. Um, I don't think it's, you're going into stuff for the right reasons. Um, I think that we need to recognize that the world today is freaking amazing. All these comforts and conveniences we have, they're uh, amazing. 
So I'm not telling you to like never use your cell phone again or like never sit on the couch. You should be squatting all the time when you're watching TV or whatever BS people come up with. Like, no. But what I am telling you is that if that is all you're doing, you're, you're going to have some long-term negative impacts over that. So it's like, for me, the question is, how can I, how can I take advantage of this, all this amazing stuff we have, but not um, take advantage of it so frequently that, that it starts to backfire? And how can I consciously weave discomfort back into my life? So I'll give you some examples of how I, how I sort of think about this stuff. Okay, well, I told you guys boredom is good told you that nature is good. There's a handful of reasons for that. Um, 20, 30 minutes a day, I will leave my cell phone at home and I will just go walk. I live out on the edge of the desert. I'll just go walk out in the desert for like 30 minutes. I'm in nature, totally removed from my phone. It's not, it's, there's no, you know, I can't use it at all. I'm just removed from it. Something as simple as that, like the research shows it has incredible benefits to our health. Like we don't need to go extreme. I think, you know, every now and then, maybe once a year, it is good to try and take off a, a big challenging task. So that's one thing that I do, but I don't do it like every week because if you're constantly like just trying to do like the hardest, craziest thing you could do all the time, like you're going to burn out, you know? Um, so for me, like I'll do, I'll pick off one big crazy task, do it once a year. That's usually good. I learn a lot about myself through that. In terms of my physical activity, I've like rethought, you know, how I train. I do a lot more um, carrying and rocking now. And I try and think of like, how did, how did humans move in the past? How can I do what we are best adapted to do? Because, you know, some researchers I talked to at Harvard, they told me like, hey, like there's probably some additional benefits to doing things that we're, we're most adapted to. You look at training now and I think that, and I used to do a, a ton of weightlifting too. I still lift weights, but I'm doing it like two times a day, not four times a day because humans. Four times a day? You were doing four, four times a day? Oh, sorry. Four times a week. Four times a week. I was going to say, <laughs> man, that, that is, I got to yeah. tell you that's pretty impressive. <laughs> no, I'm not that extreme. Um, four or five times a week. So now I'm down to two times a week because, you know, when you look at humans, I don't think we evolved to be that strong. We need to be strong enough for day-to-day tasks. And by constantly pushing the envelope on that, I think you, you just start to break down and see injuries. And it's like, how can I just weave this stuff into my life in a way that, that freaking makes sense? And I'm not just like doing stuff for the sake of it being hard. Like I'm arguing we need to find the right kinds of discomfort and weave it back to our life into our life in an intelligent way that makes sense in the context of what we know um, from modern research and just like ancient practices and wisdom. Well, well, well here's, here's a question for you. What do you think about culture uh, in terms of Kim Kardashian and uh, Marvel movies having an impact on why people go to the gym or why people have their diets optimized, right? This is what you're talking about. You're talking about, in my opinion, what you're talking about is we're doing things for the wrong reasons. So where, where we optimize our diet, maybe what we're doing is we're trying to look like Kim Kardashian or when we go to the gym and we're working out with these weird machines that we never used ever until like a hundred years ago, we're trying to look like, you know, Chris Evans from Captain America. And I think I, what do you, well, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think for, I think for men in particular, um, there's this idea that like more muscle is always better. It's, I don't think that's true. I think you see, like you see arguments like, 
um, the idea of body mass index, BMI being totally ridiculous because like, oh, the rock is technically obese and BMI, but like he's super jacked. It's like, well, he's still going to have problems from that. We know that being too big, whether that is from muscle or from fat, there's no real like distinction. Too much is too much. Like people today, I think are generally too big. Like we're just big humans. And you, you, you look at the data on longevity, like people like to focus in on, Oh, like, what did this person eat? What do they eat? What do they do? It's like the people who live the longest have two things going for them. They are in a developed nation have decent access to medical care. They're not too damn big. This is why we say little old man, not, you don't ever hear <laughs> right. Big old man. You don't smaller people tend to live longer and you see this across species. This is why chihuahuas live longer than great Danes. Is that something down to like how the metabolism works and you're burning less calories and it's having less of an impact on your body? Metabolism, joint strain, more organ stress, organ strain. So I think like to bring it back to men, it's like if you just want to be super jacked, like that's totally fine. If you think that culturally that's going to help you because it totally, it totally might. But realize that it, it, it doesn't become as much of a health thing anymore. Of course, having muscle instead of fat is probably better. But like just being massive for the sake of being massive, I don't think is a is a good uh, look. In terms of um, in terms of women, I think I don't know, man. Like maybe the Kim Kardashian thing has been good because I think it has um, made women more likely to strength train. To be honest, it's like you've seen a lot more women go into the gym because they're like, oh, I got to I got to build this booty. Like you see them doing like hip thrusts and stuff, and. Um, the data suggests that, you know, women are less likely to hit the exercise guidelines simply because they don't lift weights as much. And I get it. Like you go into a gym, there's dudes that are creepy and they're trying to talk to you. But I think it has like helped women um, move weight, which which is probably good now. <laughs> now to get back to the intention and the reasoning. I don't know why, you know, I don't know what to say about that, but it's like, yeah, whatever. It's yeah. going to be healthy for you. <laughs> it, 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 it's like a, it's, it's definitely a win for men. If the women do, I mean, in my opinion, I do like artificial, uh, superficially speaking, I do like women who are quite well-developed muscularly. Uh, so, but with strength training, I did, I did learn uh, that, you know, resistance training has a significant impact on the longevity. So yeah, I, I can, I can hear what you're saying with that. Um, but, and it's, um, and it's like, I think sometimes the studies get taken out of context where like, there'll be a study that says, Oh, people who had more muscle lived, you know, were less likely to die across five years. Now the populations they're studying, they're not going, Oh, the dude who lifts five times a week and is kind of jacked versus the guy who lifts five times a week and is super jacked. We're talking about very basic levels of muscle mass. You know, they're basically comparing people who don't do anything and therefore have a dangerously low level of muscle mass to people who have like an adequate because they kind of do enough, you know? So I think people take it out of context and go, oh, well, then I, I should just be as huge as possible. Yeah. I like Ben Greenfield. Uh, if you, you've probably heard of Ben Greenfield, I like some of the philosophies he has about being, uh, you know, fit and making sure that what you do is practical and has some kind of functional benefit to it. I mean, you know, uh, 
but but not everyone can be like Ben Greenfield. I mean, that's his job. So it's not like you know, it's easy to look at the brand of Ben and and say, oh my God, I wish I could be like that one day. I mean, that's that's what he does. That's his life. So, but his teachings are generally speaking, I think, leading people down the right path to to the thinking this way. Um, what do you in your studies and your research? What do you think is the example of a civilization that kind of got it right when it comes to balancing being stoic in the way that they think about, uh, you know, life's comforts and challenges and just having advancement and things like technology? And was there something that stood out to you? Maybe it was the Romans. Maybe it wasn't because they you know, they, they went down under. So, uh, yeah, I'd be interested to know if, if there was anything that stood out to you that you were like, Oh God, mm-hmm. we should be more like that. That's a good question. I mean, I can give you a few examples that I think, um, are interesting. Um, so men in Iceland are the longest living on earth. And the reason is not what they eat, their diet. They, they eat a lot of calories. They don't eat many vegetables. Um, they're kind of middle of the pack in terms of exercise, their health care is whatever, but somehow they, they live super long. And the reason for this, there's, there's a lot of things going on, but one of them is probably um, genes and that their ancestors evolved in a super harsh environment over a thousand years. The, the island was totally desolate. And then um, some Vikings from Norway about a thousand years ago decided they were going to defect and they went and they kidnapped a bunch of women from um, the UK actually. And then they sailed to Iceland. There's no one there. It was a terrible place to live. Not a lot of food grows there. It's totally harsh, uncomfortable environment. And it was hard to live there. And, you know, a lot of people perished along the way, but um, one theory is that essentially by, having all these generations that toughed it out, that roughed it out, they could survive all the hell that Iceland manages to throw at a population. It sort of has selected for the hardier people. And so this might be one reason why they're, um, they live so long, despite having all these things that say they probably shouldn't, you know? So I think that that's a really interesting case. I traveled there and I met with a guy who's a geneticist. His name's, um, Kerry Stefanson, and he owns this massive, he, he ran the, um, neuroscience department at Harvard for a bunch of years, but then he wanted to go back and study genes in Iceland because it's a really interesting place to study genetics because a lot of people are, are related there. Um, so I think that's an interesting example. Um, honestly, I think like the country of Japan is an interesting case study. Um, they tend to live relatively long, rather stoic. There some of their policies are interesting. And I think there's there can kind of be a sense of, of mindfulness there and protectionism. Um, it's pretty interesting. And they, they walk a lot. I think that something that happens in fitness is, you know, we, we do really intense things, but we sort of forget that it's good to do intense things, but also something as simple as walking is like what humans evolved to do. And it's, it's good for us, you know? Yeah. It's it, for, for many people, including myself, it's either all or nothing. That's usually how I think about anything actually that's difficult. If I, if I'm not doing it properly or if I'm not doing it the whole way, I just might as well not bother one because of the neurological discomfort involved in actually getting into the, 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 the action and starting to take action. 
that's a lot. Even so just for a little bit of movement, like going for a walk around the block, I'm like, is it worth it to me to go through that, you know, suffering <laughs> to get to the point? So, so there's that. But then I think if you're a perfectionist too, like me, it can be really daunting to, to know that what you're doing isn't actually a hundred percent what you should be doing, what you could be doing, yeah. but it will help. It will help. Yeah, for sure. totally. Um, yeah. What, what's interesting about that is I agree with you. It is hard. It's like, I'm going to take this 30 minutes to do something that's kind of easier. Um, I, when I was at men's health, I trained a bit at Jim Jones and the, when they were at their height, it was kind of known as like the most intense, crazy gym you could ever train at. Like they trained the actors in 300, um, a lot of Which different superheroes. It's called Jim Jones. Um, it had such uh, intense characters that it sort of imploded on itself, but it was like the energy there at its height was like the ultimate place you could ever train and just crazy. And um, the guy who founded it, all of a sudden one day he realized that like his fitness was, was just kind of exploding. Like all of a sudden he, you know, his rows were faster. He was putting up bigger numbers and lifts and he kind of tried to figure out like, what the hell is going on? I haven't changed that much. It occurred to him, uh, he'd gotten a dog and he had started walking this dog every day for like 30 minutes or an hour. And now those walks were helping with his active recovery. So I think we sometimes don't realize like how powerful some of that stuff can be. And then when things start to change, it's like, oh, that that's like the only thing. That's like the one thing that has sort of changed it for me. You know what I mean? So I think that's kind of a good, I use that story as a selling point that, like walking can be powerful, even if you're the type of like type A, go hard or go home person, um, like you are, like I am, like a lot of people can be, you know? Yeah, that's fascinating. I did live with my family last year through the pandemic. We have a family dog. So I can, I can, I can relate to that. I can relate to taking it for a walk every, every day and seeing the benefits. Um, some something that I, I was fascinated in, and I think maybe maybe we can make this our last point of discussion, but something that I was fascinated by and still am was habit setting or habit destruction, bad habit destruction and good habit creation. Um, and I read a couple of books, the most the most notable being James Clear's book, Atomic Habits. I don't know if you've read that, but it's a great book. Anyone who's listening might want to grab a copy of it. And one of the things that James talks about is making it easy, making it easier to actually adopt these new habits or get them in motion. And so, you know, you're saying, well, it might not be buying a dog. I mean, that could be a quite a large life decision, I would say, but just small things and getting into the mindset of like, don't go from zero to a hundred, let's go from zero to 10 first and just take it from there. Start optimizing things and removing things from our lives that aren't serving us anymore, that are keeping us like, for example, maybe you want to put your phone in a completely different room, like the kitchen downstairs when you're going to go to bed because you won't use it before you're sleeping and you won't wake up in the morning and grab it first thing, which is just proven to be such a bad thing for priming your day or getting a good night's sleep. Um, do you have any kind of routine or um, do you have any kind of notable habits like this every day that you, you think would uh, benefit for other people? 
Yeah, I think um, I think you did bring up a, a good point about removal. I think that um, it's easier to progress by removing the things that are holding you back than it is by adding stuff. It's like we always want to add new shiny things, but if your foot is on the brake as you just pressing the gas harder isn't going to make you go any faster, what will make you go faster is just taking your foot off the brake, removing those barriers to entry. So I think um, a lot of times, I mean, I think about something like, diet, what often is the barrier to entry is that people aren't even aware of what their habits are. So take something like, um, like diet, how many calories do, did you eat yesterday? What about the day before? People have no idea. People constantly misjudge how much they eat. So they'll, they'll do studies on people, um, who are overweight or obese and they'll, you know, these people will be like, well, I can't lose weight despite eating a thousand calories a day. When scientists pr- precisely measure exactly what they're eating, they find that they're at, the people are actually eating 2,000 calories a day. So that's kind of like this, this bigger thing that happens in our lives that w- we just aren't aware of where we are stumbling, where our stumbling blocks are. Um, this is where trying to put in practices that make you aware of that, whether that be journaling, whether that be like with food, like try weighing and tracking your food for two weeks. You're going to learn something crazy. Um, with your exercise, it's like, okay, if you have a workout planned and you didn't make it track back, what happened, you know, the five hours track every hour, what happened that made you miss that? Where was the barrier there? So I think that awareness can help, um, spur action. You know, (laughs) once you're aware of something that there's a problem, problems don't get better. Whereas goals, I can set a goal and be like, eh, I didn't meet it. I'll just set another goal. Who the hell cares? But a problem, I'm going to go, man, this thing is like attacking my shoe and it's there and I can see it and it just keeps burrowing deeper and deeper and deeper. So identifying problems, um, I think is really important. Um, for, for me and my own sort of daily habits, I, you know, I'm first and foremost a writer. So I get up maybe four 30 every morning. It's just kind of, I don't set an alarm. Um, and I write, you know, cause that's the thing that I do. And I know that my most creative time is, uh, early in the morning. So I'll write anywhere from four 30 to, you know, 10 AM. And then, um, and then the rest of the day is just kind of open. I know that I need to exercise at least five, six times a week in order to not go crazy. <laughs> so I sort of like, I usually do that at the end of the day. And then in between, it's kind of just filling in a lot of the stuff that, that comes along with um, the job, you know, emails, interviewing sources, stuff like that. I don't know if uh, I'm not one of those people who is super strict with a routine. Like you hear, you know, a lot of productivity gurus are like, do not open Instagram. The first hour you wake up at an hour and 10 minutes, you must take this supplement and an hour and 30 minutes upon wake up, you must do X, Y, Z. Like don't overthink it. Like I think people inherently know what is good for them. The question is like, why the hell aren't you doing it? (laughs) Right. Um, I think that these sort of very complicated rituals that people have are often just distractions from, from doing the work. Absolutely. Like analysis paralysis. I, yeah. I notice every single time I list out uh, a new routine and I say, okay, at 9 a.m. I'm going to do this. At, at, at 6 p.m. I'm going to do this. I, I just find it so difficult. It's, it's not the way I am. It's not the kind of person I am. And I've beaten myself up in the past for it. But now... I'm like, it's okay. It's just a, it's a guideline. It's a reference point. 
But you're right. If you pay enough attention to your body, to yourself, not even with your, you know, what you're most energetic about at that particular time, maybe, maybe you should write when you feel like you want to write. Maybe you should, you know, go and work out when you feel like you want to work out and not try to fit it into just a box every day. But not only that, but, you, you know, you start to become more aware of what you should be eating you know, your body's trying to tell you, you know, don't eat that because you don't need it. You don't need to put that in your stomach right now. And maybe what you need is something else. So, but Michael, it's been an absolutely fantastic conversation. I, I think it just, it was uh, mind blowing in, in some of the uh, insights that I got from it. And your book, Comfort Crisis, it's out now, right? People can it get it. It is out now. Yeah. It's available um, pretty much wherever books are sold. I think in the, in the UK, you can get um, hard copies and audio copies in Australia, you can get audio. And if you're in the U S it's wherever. So nice. Um, where can people contact you or find you online if they want to get in touch or they want to see your stuff? Yeah. Good question. So I have a website. It's Easter Michael that has my email if you have a question or something, but I'm on Instagram, um, as well. That's probably the social platform that I'm most active on. And that's, uh, at Michael underscore Easter. And I appreciated talking to you, man. That was a lot of fun. It was a, it was a good conversation. Yeah, no, thanks. I, I, you know, I try to make it as conversational as possible and, uh, and, and make it just an organic, you know, discussion between two people. So I think that's what the value is in long form podcasting. Yeah. It's I'm more in that you. natural flow. But uh, thank you so much, man. And, you know, if you've got any more books in the future, come back on. We'll talk about them. Awesome. I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe today and you won't miss the next episode. We cover topics like recovering from infidelity, online dating, managing chronic anxiety, and so much more. We're on all the popular platforms, so take your pick and we'll see you soon.